take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Exodus chapters 33 and 34 this morning. Exodus chapters 33 and 34. This will be our last installment in our Exodus series. Now, I want to I show you this morning, there's an opportunity here for a good Bible interpretation lesson when you're reading legal passages or long narrative passages. I, I hope this will be helpful in a variety of ways. Um, one, one of the things that we'll look at is the fact that this little short narrative, chapters 30, 32 through 34, is positioned in the middle of this long legal text. It's the kind of passage, chapters 20 through 40 of Exodus, the kind of passage that when you get to and you read the Bible through in a year program, you might sort of stumble or balk at. Um, but here in the middle of that long text is a brief narrative that helps us to appreciate what is emphasized in all of those legal passages that provide its context. One of the things that I've always found interesting about the preaching ministry of Jesus and the preaching ministry of the Apostle Paul is that they, they preached so much about grace that they were often accused of being light on obedience. Like in Jesus' ministry, he had to actually say in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Apostle Paul is accused of teaching that we should sin more in order that grace may abound. He addresses this at length in Romans 6 and even parts of chapter 7. The, the deal is this. The answer to our sin issues, and we all have sin issues, is not a greater concentration on our sin issues the answer to our sin problems is the grace of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. That's how, that's how the problem of sin in our heart and our life is ultimately and finally resolved. And the theme of this section of Exodus, chapters 32, 33, and 34, is grace, grace, grace. We learn something about God and man in this section that is central to our understanding of the Scripture, to our understanding of ourself, and certainly to our understanding of, of who God is. The radical sinfulness of mankind, and it's dark, it's bad, it's an ugly thing, is no match for the grace afforded us through Jesus Christ. We learn here of the boundless grace of our Savior. So if you found your way there in your copy of God's Word, let's look together at Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse number 18, and we're going to read through uh, verse 9 of chapter 34. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Here's what the Bible says, beginning in verse 18. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. And he said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he answered, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here's a place near me. You're to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be prepared by morning, come up Mount Sinai in the morning, and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one must be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. 
In verse 4, Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name Yahweh. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshiped. Then he said, my Lord, if I have indeed found favor in your sight, my Lord, please go with us. Even though this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wrongdoing and sin and accept us as your own possession. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. So let's think about the way the Exodus story is built In chapter 20, God gives Moses and via Moses, the people of Israel, the Ten Commandments and various other laws. Chapters 20 through 31 are given to describing the details of these laws. But before Moses can even descend the mountain, before it seems the exchange from God to Moses of the law even can unfold in its entirety, The people have already violated the law down below. Moses is still with God atop Mount Sinai when God tells him of the sin of Israel. And then Moses descending the mountain sees firsthand their idolatry with the golden calf. They're dancing about the calf. They're committing a variety of other sins as they participate in the idolatrous worship of this golden calf. They barely get the law before they have violated the law. It's a concept that we see in the New Testament described this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even in the transfer of the righteous standard of God's character to man, it had already been violated below the mountain. This is where we are. We are a deeply sinful people. The law comes and introduces us to our sinfulness It reveals to us ways in which we are broken that we might not have even been aware we were broken. In the confession of our sin, we are almost helpless in that there are certain sins that we're even unaware of. The psalmist said, Lord, reveal to me my secret sin. We are all deeply, desperately sinful people. It's in the marrow of our bones. We are a broken people. But with the introduction of this great sin in the Exodus narrative, there, there, there is introduced a question. What will God now do with the people of God, given that they have sinned in such a grievous way before him? What will now happen with the covenant in light of the fact that the people have already turned to idolatry? Will God move forward with the people? Is there anything that can be done to remedy this situation for the people of God? And the answer is a resounding yes. Grace is the answer. Chapters 32, 33, and 34 reveal a new attribute of God's character to us in the Exodus narrative. God revealed himself first to Moses as the great I am in Exodus chapter 3. 
God revealed his justice, his righteousness to Moses and the people of God, beginning in chapter 20, as he said, this is my law. This is the standard to which you've been called. And then at the failure of the people to meet the standard, God reveals this new amazing attribute of his character, his amazing grace. In verse 18 of chapter 3, Moses asks boldly, please let me see your glory. And already in anticipation of this revelation, God begins to speak of the uniqueness of his grace. He says in verse 19, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. In verse 6 of chapter 34, the Bible says the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. I'm not entirely sure what this uh, speaks of what this is all about, but, but in essence, the Bible says God passed in front of Moses and he preached himself to Moses. God came and preached the gospel of God to Moses, and this is what he said. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. This is intrinsic to the nature of God, that he is gracious and merciful, that he forgives the sin of his people, that he is rich in faithful love and truth, that he is slow to anger. In the early days of my walk with Jesus, when I was a new believer, I was really, I almost had a resentment for this emphasis on the grace of God. I would hear preachers preach, but I needed grace, don't misunderstand me, and I was glad for the grace that I received. But I, I would hear the grace of God couched in, in certain terms that troubled me. I would hear preachers talk about people laboring, striving to meet a certain level of righteousness, to win favor with God. And they, they would press in that context the, the, the free nature of God's grace. And I'm thinking, I, I, don't, I don't see anybody striving or straining for grace or for favor with God. They're not rely I don't see people who are relying on their own righteousness to win them favor with God that need to hear of, of this grace. I certainly had not been prior to my conversion. There was no effort on my part to win the favor of God. My lifestyle was perfectly consistent with my worldview. I did not believe that there was anything beyond the grave. I did not believe in the existence of a God, at least not beyond a superficial level. And so the only thing left for me to do was to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And I, and I hadn't made this observation in the world in which, I in which I lived that there were people who were laboring to win the favor of God. But in the church context, especially in the Bible Belt, I've come to appreciate that there are people who are straining and striving and laboring to win the favor of God. And, and I just want to encourage you, you, you will, you'll never do it. You cannot do it. This is why Jesus says, in the context of the Pharisees and, and their efforts at righteousness, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In some sense, all of us, according to the dictates of our own personal standard, are trying to win the favor of God. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Come to me. I've already done for you what you're trying to do and failing to do for yourself. 
God reveals himself here to Moses in a way that is astounding, in a way that answers our deepest and most pressing need. We are sinful people in need of great grace and mercy, and that grace can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Here God reveals himself in an astounding way as the God, not just of righteousness and virtue, but the God of great, great grace. Look back to chapter 34 and verse 1. The Bible says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Moses threw down the first set of tablets. And he's not chastised for doing so either. Moses flies off the handle from time to time. He strikes the rock and is forbidden uh, permission to go into the promised land. But there's, there's no condemnation for Moses breaking the tablets. The people had already broken the tablets, in essence, at the foot of Mount Sinai. God says, Bring fresh tablets. Be prepared by morning, come up Mount Sinai and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one must be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first. He got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. Now, if you've been reading along in Exodus or have been a part of our study for some time, you'll note that what Moses is commanded to do here is just exactly what Moses had been commanded to do in the prior instance. God is redoing, in essence, what had been undone by the casting down of those tablets and the sin of the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. In verse 5, the Bible says, The Lord came down in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed his name, Yahweh, he passed in front of him and made the proclamation that we've read now, Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Here are the adjectives used to describe God's character, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, rich in faithful love. They're almost all unique to God's character. In other words, you don't find them in the Old Testament related to any other person or character. They're all specific to God. Because the compassion, the grace, the mercy, the faithful love of God is unlike the grace we find in or with anyone else. It's unique to God and God himself. Only God can grant this kind of grace. The latter part of verse 7 says he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Rather, he brings the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. This is not to say that children or grandchildren are judged specifically for the sins that their fathers or grandfathers do. It is to say that our children and grandchildren are deeply influenced by the things that we do. If I were to shake hands with one of you today who's carrying around the flu bug, God forbid, and carry that home, which would be a dreadful thing that we'll all pray against happening. And, all, and all, my, my children are not going to suffer with my sickness. My sickness will be my sickness. Now, they'll have to suffer with my complaining for six or seven days, but they'll not suffer from my disease. But in all likelihood, they'll catch it before it leaves the house. This is the scenario that Moses describes, that God describes of himself. It, it heightens, it emphasizes the importance of faithfulness on the part of fathers and grandfathers to the teaching of God's word, that we influence those under our care within our stewardship, that they too would 
love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of their heart and soul and strength and mind. So God reveals his grace. And that's emphasized in what remains of the book of Exodus from chapter 34 forward. There are again these long legal texts. Again, the kind of text that you may meander off in your imagination while reading in your Read the Bible Through in a Year programs. And what you'll find is that in many cases, they're verbatim what was written in Exodus 20 through 31. Now, that may seem insignificant to you, but let me tell you what it means. It means that the covenant remains. It means that in spite of the great sin of the people of God, there is still a relationship with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not because of the deeds that they had done, but because of the grace that had been afforded them through God's great favor. In, in the, in the buildup here to our celebration of the Lord's table, an opportunity for us to remember the grace of God we have in Jesus, I want to give you quickly five observations based on our text that I hope will be an encouragement to your understanding and appreciation for the grace we have in God. Number one, I want you to know that because of grace, we have a second chance. God could have completely killed the people of Israel and would have been justified in doing so. God could have killed each of us and would have been completely justified in doing so. Yet he affords us life, breath, grace, and mercy through Jesus. Because of grace, we have a second opportunity. Now that ought to come uh, in a refreshing and encouraging way to many of you. Some of you in the last week have made dreadful decisions that have brought embarrassment and shame on yourself, on your family, on your Savior. You, you've, you've done things that were completely out of character with who you are. You've made mistakes that you'll live with for the rest of your life. You wish that there was somehow some way you could turn back the hands of time and undo the thing that you've done. Now, God never promises us to turn back the hands of time, but he does promise to give us a brand new beginning in Jesus as we entrust our souls to a good and faithful God, because of grace, there's a new opportunity for us. Secondly, because of God's grace, the plan of God is not derailed. The disobedience of God's people does not derail the divine plan. God is not hindered by our foolishness in fulfilling his purpose in this world. Your, your sin does not beset what God intends for you. And there are famous examples of how this works itself out. The oldest and perhaps one of the most obvious examples of this is in Genesis 37 through 50. Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob. He was the favored son. He wore the coat of many colors, as you may remember. But his brothers were jealous. They threw him into a pit and they sold him into slavery. And he was bought into Potiphar's house. While in Potiphar's house, he was falsely accused of a sexual assault, and he wound up, wound up in prison. While in prison, he interpreted the dreams of a cupbearer and a baker and ultimately was released for his dream interpretation skills. And before you know it, within the span of 13 chapters and 13 years, Joseph is at the right hand of Pharaoh. He's in the second most powerful position in the land of Egypt. At the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50, after the death of Joseph's fathers, his brothers come before him. And they fear for their life. They expect that now that their daddy is dead, Joseph's going to kill them for what they did to him. But Joseph says in verse 20 of Genesis 50, you don't understand. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
God has a way of taking the evil intent, the evil actions indeed, of the people of this world and bending them to serve his purpose. At the same time they were intended for evil by the brothers of Joseph, they were intended for the good of God's people by a good and faithful God who is in heaven. The most exceptional example of this is the death of Jesus. At the hands of sinners, the sinless, righteous Son of God was executed on a Roman cross. And the fallout, the consequence, the result of that grave, sinful act was the salvation of men, women, and boys, and girls of every generation, and people of every tribe and tongue and nation. God is not beset by your sin. Your personal failures, the fault in you, is not the end of the divine road or plan that God has for your life. He always has been and he always will be in the business of taking what we intend for evil and using it for our good and for his glory. Number three, because of God's grace, the covenant remains. Now, the language of covenant may, may be tricky for some. It's, it's like a contract, but it's more than that. It's a contract that's bound by affection. What I mean by the, the covenant remains, I, I mean that the relationship between God and his people remains intact because of his great grace. The relationship that we have with God is unchanged by the presence of sin in us because of the grace that he has shown us in his son. Now, there's a, a way in which you might take that as license to just go and sin more that grace may abound. And shame on you if that's the mode of interpretation that you wish to take this morning. But I, I want that the church would hear and be encouraged and that the weak and heavy laden among us would know that there is grace sufficient for the day, grace sufficient to cover for your sin, that there is a place for you at the cross in spite of the things that you've done, indeed in spite of the things that you may do in a day that is yet to come. By God's grace, the covenant remains. The other day I was looking at a passage in the closing chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. You don't have to turn there, you'll know the verse. There Jesus is quoted as saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a good English rendering of the Greek text. But what you can't see there is what the Greek emphasizes so boldly in that verse. There are five negatives in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Now for you English teachers, that's not good English, but it makes for great Greek. And here's, here's the way we might render that. God says, Jesus says, that by faith in him through the gift of grace, I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. That's what Hebrews 13, 5 says. Now, the reason we can claim that promise is because of what Jesus has afforded us through the cross. Because of grace, we can say Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That on my worst day, he's a friend who's at my side, holding me fast. Nothing can snatch me from the hand of God. Because of God's grace, the covenant remains. Number four. Because of God's grace, he reveals himself. He makes himself known because of grace. He doesn't have to make himself known. He's not obligated to make himself known. 
It is a function of God's great grace that he does make himself known. He makes himself known in a pretty spectacular way in Exodus 33 and 34. Moses is so impacted by this encounter with God that when he descends Mount Sinai this time, he's forced to wear a veil because his countenance has changed. His face is glowing at this encounter. It was that before when Moses brought the law from Sinai, he was astonished at what he saw in the people as they danced around the golden calf. But on this trip when Moses encountered the grace of God, the people are now astonished at what they see in Moses. God's grace changes everything for us. And then fifth and lastly, because of God's grace, we are able to obey his commands. I, I, really, I, I really want you to understand this part. Because of God's grace, you can have the ability to do what he commands you to do. Now, I said to you early on that there was, for me, this resentment for this idea that people were trying to please God, and, and there's been a gradual discovery that those kinds of people actually do exist out there in the world. If you're a part of that tribe, pl please listen carefully to what I'm about to say. The, the reason that you're never going to win the favor of God by your own personal effort is because you, you flatly don't have the ability to do that. You don't have the ability to carry out faithfully what God has called you to. The standard is just absolutely too much for you to bear. But when we, we come to God and surrender our will for his, we receive the promise of the gospel for everlasting life and the forgiveness of our sin. The Bible says that by grace, the spirit of God comes to abide within us. So much so that John says, greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. And there's a new capacity now for faithful obedience. When Paul addresses this idea, should we sin more that grace may abound in Romans chapter 6, the ultimate answer to that question is, no, that, that's not the way we should interpret the gospel. It's now foolish for you to live in sin as a believer because for the first time in your life you don't have to. You don't have to live in perpetual sin because the Spirit of God has come to live within you, to enable you to serve Him faithfully. Are y'all tracking with me this morning? Are y'all hearing me? Because of God's grace, we can obey. In other words, apart from God's grace, we cannot obey. When the Bible speaks of our being dead in sins and trespasses, we are literally spiritually dead in our sins and trespasses. We don't have the capacity for obedience apart from the grace of Jesus. But when the grace of God has come, when the Spirit has taken up residence in our heart, when God comes to tabernacle within us to abide in our bodies, we are empowered by the presence of the Spirit to serve Him faithfully and freely with all that we have. Aren't you glad for that? It's all because of grace. It's all because of grace. It's all because of grace. As we approach the Lord's table, I want you to understand that what we're celebrating here is the sustaining grace of God. In baptism, we celebrate saving grace. We memorialize the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior Jesus, and we give testimony to the fact that the old man has died and a new man has been raised to walk in resurrection power. That's what we do in baptism. But at the Lord's table, as we partake of the bread and the cup, 
We're celebrating the reality that we don't just need grace from God at the beginning of our journey with Jesus. We need him every hour. There's not a moment of our life that we don't need the sustaining grace that's afforded us through Jesus. So Jesus says, when you take the bread, which is my body, broken for you, do so in remembrance of me. As you take the bread, remember the sacrifice that was made on your account that the covenant might remain. That it might be said, and justifiably so, that I will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he says, take the cup, which is the blood of the new covenant, shed for many for the remission of sin, a covenant that goes unchanged because of what Jesus did for us at the cross. An empty garden grave stands as the greatest monument to the unchanging nature of the covenant that God has made with us by faith in Jesus Christ. When you take this cup, I want you to do it in remembrance of me, remembering the blood that was shed at Calvary's tree in order that you might know the grace afforded us by the Father through the Son. Aren't you glad for God's grace? Now, we're going to have a time of invitation the way that we always do, a time when we invite you to, to respond by faith, to just come and say, I, I want to be, be born again. I want forgiveness of sin and the hope of everlasting life. There was a young lady in the first service. She did it just the way you're supposed to do it. She came and she said, I want to be saved. That's all you really need is, is a desire, and God is pleased to meet that, that want. God will give you what you want as, as, as much as you want Jesus. If you want him more than anything else, God will give him to you. The gift of forgiveness and everlasting life, God is pleased to answer that petition. God will give you his son this morning. In exchange for your sin, he will give you the righteousness of his only son. And so we invite you to come to receive the gift of the gospel, sonship in Jesus Christ. We invite you to answer the call to believer's baptism. And I would note for you that until you've celebrated saving grace in baptism, the Lord's table is really off limits. You can't celebrate sustaining, sanctifying grace until you've rightly celebrated the saving grace that we have in Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to answer the call to baptism this morning. We'd invite you to do just that. Or maybe God is calling you into the fellowship of our church. We'd love to have you as a part of our faith family, a part of what God is doing here at Longview Point. All of those options, all of those roads for response are available to you this morning. But there's an added layer here this morning as we prepare to approach the Lord's table. The church of Jesus ought to ready itself to come to take the bread and the cup. This is such an important issue that Paul takes an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to talk about what it looks like, what it ought to look like when we come to the Lord's table. You ought to be born again. You ought to be baptized. But there are some deeper issues that the Apostle Paul addresses there. There, there are problems of division in the church. And Paul says if you're harboring animus or hostility in your heart toward another brother or sister, you really need to resolve that before you come to the Lord's table, lest you eat and drink judgment against yourself. In a more general sense, Paul says if you're harboring sin, if you've given yourself over to the things of this world, you ought to pray and make confession of those things and write your heart so that you can come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. And then he gives this warning. He says because you failed to be a good judge of yourself, and you've come to the table harboring sin, division, hostility in your heart because you've come as sin-sick people. There are many among you who have, who have died or are sick as a result of judgment from your dealing carelessly with the Lord's table. 
the Lord's Supper was an important part of my coming to faith in Jesus. I, I will never forget, I, I know I've shared at some point with you, being in a Sunday evening service with my granny, and they're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and the preacher preached the gospel. It was the first time I'd ever heard or at least understood the gospel. I'm sure there were people who had attempted at communicating that to me at some point. And then the bread and the cup was passed. And the bread comes around, and you know how it looks, and it, it comes by, and my granny, just, she just passed me over. And I thought, well, she dismissed me, no problem. She'll get me on the next round, you know. I really don't know how this works anyway. Did I do something wrong? And then, and then the cup is passed, and she passed me over. And just about the time the person to my left took the tray, it dawned on me. There, there, there's a difference, in this case a tangible, visible difference between me and the people around me. I'm here as a lost person. These people are gathered here as believers in this message. They have committed their life to this Jesus, and I have not. This morning, as the bread and the cup is passed, some of you are going to have to reckon with the reality that you are here this morning as a person who is uncommitted to the gospel message, who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. And the invitation that I would offer you this morning is to taste and to see that our God is good, to come to him, to find grace and mercy, not just admission to the table, but admission to the kingdom of God through his son, Jesus Christ.